ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Three. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. I'm George Drake Jr. And this is Everything Sounds. Speak English, comrade. Remember, that is about the only freedom you do not have in this town. It's American town. Americans, they have too many freedoms. That is another thing you must remember, comrade. For one day it will be your mission to destroy those bourgeois capitalist freedoms. That's from a film called Red Nightmare. It was released in 1962 primarily to educate the U.S. armed forces on the supposed dangers of communism during the Cold War. The film tells the story of a typical American man. I want you to meet Jerry Donovan. He's proud of his country, but prone to take his liberties for granted. One day he wakes up to find that the government has been infiltrated by communists. Espionage as a science. Propaganda as an art. Sabotage as a business. They set up fake American-style towns behind the Iron Curtain. From all appearances, this community could be in Iowa, California, or Tennessee. It looks like an American town. As American as apple pie and ice cream. As a matter of fact, you can find apple pie here and ice cream too. But appearances are deceptive. This is not an American town. Now, even though the film was only intended for military use, it eventually made its way onto television and into schools. The Cold War led to fear and paranoia in everyday U.S. citizens and even the U.S. government. You might call this a college town, communist style, as part of a long-range plan to destroy our free way of life. These young communists are studying the economic, political, and religious institutions that are the very heartbeat of America. The fear didn't just stop with films. The threat of nuclear war was so real and so scary, the Federal Reserve built a bunker in Mount Pony in Culpeper, Virginia. It had enough cash and currency to restart the economy east of the Mississippi River if there was a catastrophic event. The facility was finished in 1969, and it held billions of dollars through 1988, but it was hardly used. At that point, the space became a hub that could continue government operations in the event of an attack. It had 100 staff members, freeze-dried rations, private wells for uncontaminated water, cold storage, and bunks. But, of course, no major threats to the U.S. government or economy developed, and eventually the facility's functions were divided into smaller sites. It kept a small crew until 1997, but the facility wasn't well-maintained, and the bunker was put up for sale. Even though it wasn't in use, its original purpose is still notorious today. He's aware that someone must assume responsibility for the liberties, for our free way of life. Yet, when there's a job to be done, Jerry, like so many Americans, is apt to ask, why me? A Cold War era Federal Reserve bunker. It's pretty interesting, right? But what does it have to do with sound? Well, since 2007, the location has been used to try to preserve American culture, but without all of the paranoia and stuff. And that's where these two guys come in. Sure, I'm Gene Deanna, head of the recorded sound section at the Library of Congress. 
And I'm Matthew Barton. I'm the curator of Recorded Sound. Around the time the bunker was outliving its usefulness, the U.S. Library of Congress was running into some problems of their own. The library had millions of audiovisual pieces to store, and they were running out of space. The issue was more complicated than just finding some other place to put it. There were important pieces of U.S. cultural history that were all put at risk by being stored in warehouses that weren't temperature controlled. Enter David Woodley Packard, the current president of the Packard Humanities Institute. And Hewlett Packard? Yeah, half of that was his dad. So while he was touring the overcrowded storage spaces of the Library of Congress, he realized that storage was one thing, but something more important could be possible. Um, Well, that was in the the early 90s when um, digital technology was taking hold. And it became uh, clear that uh, during the course of these discussions about building a storage facility, that a bigger vision was, was there if, if, the, if the library and if David Packard could embrace it. And the idea of actually building a state-of-the-art digital preservation facility for audiovisual materials um, was, was a real, could be a reality, and that's exactly what they did. Now that the ambitious goal of storing, conserving, and digitizing their sound and moving picture collections was a possibility, they needed a location that could facilitate their mission. With congressional approval, the Mount Pony Bunker was purchased on behalf of the Library of Congress from the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. The bunker grew into a state-of-the-art facility that could store, digitize, and preserve audiovisual recordings. The location is now the home of the National Audiovisual Conservation Center, or simply the Packard Campus. The Packard Campus houses collections that include nitrate film, video, color film, wax cylinders, LPs, analog tape, CDs, and digital formats. They have over 6 million items stored on 90 miles of shelves in their 415,000 square feet of usable space. Now, we didn't get a full tour because they said that it would take at least six hours to properly show us everything they have. Now that it's up and running, potential donors have been more willing to give their collections to the Library of Congress. Donors appreciate that this facility is so well suited to handling and preserving large collections. Um, So I think the major acquisitions have uh, been the Universal Music Group uh, masters, the metal parts of 78s going back to the deck of years, um, lacquer discs um, in that collection that have studio that are studio masters of uh, recording sessions that, that have never been heard and include you know Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and you know just um, just a phenomenal collection and that took up about a mile of shelf space so that was that was a fairly large acquisition. Don't get the wrong idea the sound recordings aren't always music related though music is probably the first thing that comes to mind there are plenty of recordings that aren't musical at all. Recently we've acquired some sports collections a lot of the collection spoken word so we uh, we acquired a, a, a John Miley sports broadcast collection, and subsequently after that, two more really important sports broadcast collections to really get that part of sort of our you know, American America's memory that that you know shared legacy of sporting events and sport history that really is probably, if you think about it, one of the most democratically um, shared parts of, of our cultural heritage is, is that. There's a long drive way back in Centerfield, way back, back, it is. Oh! 
They also have thousands of sound recordings going back to the 78 era that include what essentially amounts to the sounds of American life and business. Sounds like factory machinery, typewriters, steam whistles, gunshots, and just about anything else you could imagine. And then there's the incidental sound that, that uh, used for movies and television. Uh, they say you've got the suspenseful uh, sound leading up to something happening, and then you've got the maybe the incidental music uh, that's sort of a spy music or thriller music, and then romance music, and all of this. That sound has been captured on these sort of unpublished uh, recordings, and we have thousands and thousands of those, which people don't even think about. Now that you have a better idea about what they have in their collection of sound recordings, let's take a trip to the vault. Um. As you walk in, you might notice that it gets a little chilly. That's because the vault is always at 50 degrees and 35% relative humidity. And when you open one of the many doors, you're greeted by rows of shelves absolutely filled with recordings of all kinds. The door we opened led to some recordings made for the military. Yeah, these are all the, the NC here. NC stands for non-commercial. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, most of these are things like this from Armed Forces Radio and Television Service, Bud's bang Bandwagon. Um, they had many musical programs uh, that they sent out. This is one of them. If you're wondering how they keep track of everything, well, they obviously have computers to help them out with that. But they actually do need a system to help them out with the computers. The strategy we've, we've used to organize the audio collection, the unpublished uh, particularly, but not only, uh, is to assign a letter prefix that identifies the format and often the size. So NCP is non-commercial pressing, and the C at the end indicates 16-inch. A would be 7, B would be 10 to 12, and C would be 16. So all of these incremental letters mean something. And then the, the number simply is a one-up number. Uh, the, the collections, when they receive these kinds of numbers, are in kind of random order on the shelf, and it obviously requires a database record uh, with the number on it to provide any access. As they were telling us about keeping track of millions of recordings, I couldn't help but ask them just one question. Now this, this may seem like kind of a frivolous question, but has your work here changed the way that you approach your own collection of recordings <laughs> at home? Uh, my, my collection at home is woefully uh, uncatalogued un and unsorted. I, you know, it's one of those, uh, it's, it'd be like a busman's holiday for me. I just, uh, I, I don't bring my good work habits home in that regard. I think Matt's way better at it. Uh, <laughs> at one time, I might have been. At the moment, though, about you know half my personal collection is in storage anyway, and there was really wasn't any rhyme or reason to uh, what stayed in storage and what's in the house. It was just, you know, what got boxed up first. So now we have an idea of how they organize the collection, but it's important to talk about how they prioritize what they digitize. There's hundreds of thousands of sound recordings and films. Sometimes it's just a matter of what is most urgent. You know, if it seems to be 
falling apart in front of you, well, yeah, let's get this patient into the operating room, you know. Um, fortunately, that doesn't happen that often, but, you know, you, you do have a lot of formats out there which, which are fragile or which are simply no longer supported. So, you know, you need to uh, you know, deal with them fairly soon or it's going to get harder and harder to get optimal playback from them. Some formats are more urgent than others. Let's take the temperamental nitrate film collection, for example. Their nitrate vaults are placed behind a firewall because that kind of film has a chemical composition similar to gunpowder. If it catches on fire, you can only contain it until it burns out. You can't actually put it out because the reaction creates oxygen, so it doesn't need air to burn. Dunking it in water might not even work. That could just lead to more smoke. Now, if it's properly stored, there's minimal risk, so the library has never had an issue, but nitrate film was used in between its inception in the 1890s through the early 1950s. It led to theater fires and even a number of deaths as a result. Better and safer alternatives were developed, but we lost a great deal of early cinematic history due to fires or the film essentially decomposing into powder. They store nitrate film at extremely cold temperatures to slow down the degradation. We'll get to some of the challenges presented by digitizing some of the older sound recordings later, but to switch the gears on the idea of urgency, you would think that recordings that were born in the digital realm would be the easiest to preserve an archive. I mean, they're already digital. Just make a copy and put it on the server, right? I mean, it makes perfect sense, but it's completely wrong. They call it a paradox of digital preservation. Some digital formats popped up and just didn't work in the marketplace, but there were still recordings made in those formats, and those might be the only copies available. You know, then you're tasked with, you know, trying to, you know, get, uh, get that particular system and get it up and running, and uh, migrating that digital recording, uh, you know, somewhere else. Uh, so it is one of the paradoxes that a digital recording from the 1990s may be more problematic to play back than a cylinder from the 1890s. Making a digital copy of a recording isn't the entire goal. The Library of Congress is trying to maintain the integrity of the original work while also adhering to archival standards at the same time. Their goal is to try and create a digital copy of the recording that is as true to the original as possible. They don't want to make any artistic decisions or try and change the original recording. Um, but that master file, best practice would be taking all the steps we can to make that playback as clean and as, uh, as um, much like, as close to, as true to the original sound recording that's on the media as possible. With respect to those sound recordings that might be damaged or fragile, how do you achieve that archival standard without causing more damage to the recording? That's where Irene comes in. No, Irene isn't a person. Irene's a machine that was developed with the help of Carl Haber from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. We'll get to what the acronym IRENE stands for after Gene tells us a little bit more about what it actually does. Um, and it is a machine that images groove media. That is, it takes a micro, using a cam micro camera, takes a highly uh, magnified image of the grooves of the sound recording, and then using software that he's written, um, reads the actual 
modulations of the image from the image, not the not the you know, record itself, but the image that it's it's taken, and produ- reproduces the sound. With this system, nothing touches the surface of the record. It's basically like making a photocopy of the record and extracting audio from that. Right now, they're working with a 2D camera that works with things like 78 RPM records. Let's hear an example. This is a 78 of Goodnight Irene performed by the Weavers on a regular turntable. And here's the same clip as imaged by Irene. Fun fact about that, um, that was actually the first piece of audio that Irene extracted. Now, as you might have guessed, the name of the machine, Irene, is in honor of that. And then they came up with some relevant terms to make an acronym. Apparently, it stands for Image, Reconstruct, Erase Noise, etc. They're currently working on perfecting a method to capture in three dimensions so that they can image the fragile wax cylinders in the library's collection as well. So, if the eventual goal is digitizing all 6 million plus items in the collection, how do they have enough data storage to handle that? Well, prepare to enter the server room. This is is what, this is where all the sound and moving image uh, digital content goes into uh, online spinning disk servers that provide access to our reading rooms. All of the access to uh, moving image and audio is digital now. We don't send uh, video and we don't send audio formats to Capitol Hill for playback. We deliver files. They don't store files at the gigabyte level. In fact, they're way, way beyond even the terabyte level. They're at what's called the petabyte level. The peta prefix essentially means 10 to the 15th. Power. So one petabyte is 1,000 terabytes, not gigabytes, 1,000 terabytes. That's enormous. It's 1 million gigabytes. But, uh, so these servers are where all of the content from the digitization suites ends up and is sustained. The Library of Congress uh, maintains a mirror site that backs up all of their uh, Capitol Hill data as well as our content here at a, in, a, in an off-site storage area. Gene said that the tape archive alone was about 10 petabytes, so around 10 million gigabytes. And now they're storing so much video, he said the audio is almost an afterthought when it comes to their storage. If you're having trouble wrapping your head around this and what it means, think of it this way. If you have a smartphone or MP3 player in your pocket and it can hold 8 gigabytes of information, you'd need around 125,000 of them to store one petabyte. So you might be wondering why. Why digitize and store all of this material? Why do we need to make copies of things that may already be commercially available or that may not have been available in the first place? Why do they need to keep all of this data? Well, part of it has to do with what we've already lost. Remember the nitrate films we mentioned earlier? It's been estimated that 90% of all American films produced before 1929 are now completely lost. For films with sound between 1927 and 1950, some estimate that over half are now lost. 
Next time you go to the theater, think about what it would be like if half of the films that we're showing would never be available for future generations to experience. Obviously, we've already experienced some tough losses, and not just with early motion pictures. For example, the early CBS radio archive is only available in bits and pieces. And we actually may have lost more of our nation's music history than we'll ever know. Um, record companies also, it's awful hard. They're not advertising things they've lost, masters that have been um, destroyed because of storage space costs. I mean, uh, Victor, the story goes that back in the 30s and 40s, Victor dumped a lot of uh, masters uh, into, um, into the swamps of Jersey somewhere. So there, is, there are anecdotally stories of lost masters. Hearing those stories might make us feel bad about all that we've lost, but it's also important to remember what we've been recovering as well. The Library of Congress has made 10,000 recordings available for streaming via the National Jukebox website, none of which have been made commercially available since their release. So for the first time in decades, the shared sounds of past generations can be discovered and enjoyed. We, we don't hear those recordings. So the, the, you know, the 78 era um, really, with the exception of some reissue, jazz reissues, some, some bluegrass and blues, take those off the, the table and the popular music and the classical music is off our radar. No one's heard it. It's not part of the soundscape. And so by getting it back out on the soundscape, people will rediscover it. People will be, artists will be uh, influenced by it, and um, it will have an impact again. And that's what, that's really why we're here. The National Jukebox is a great development, but the fact remains that the U.S. has some of the most restrictive copyright laws in the world regarding sound recordings. The vast majority of recordings won't enter the public domain in the United States until February 15, 2067, which coincidentally, George, will be the year of our 80th birthdays. <laughs> it's very true, but more importantly, Smiley Burnett, who will have died 99 years and 364 days prior on what would have been his 155th birthday, his music will finally enter the public domain. That's the best news I've heard all day. <laughs> um, among others, <laughs> of course, his classic, Peg Leg Jack. Up to the window he turned his head and there I'm 85. He could tell by the way that she, that she would be his bride. <laughs> it's a classic. I can't wait for that. It's going to be the best birthday ever. Best birthday ever. <laughs> Anyway, recordings where the performers or writers are unidentified or people who have passed away decades ago, like Smiley, are still subject to copyright laws. We may never get opportunities to discover voices and songs of the past because they might remain in vaults or never get commercially released. It doesn't make sense for the Library of Congress to spend their time digitizing recordings that the public can't hear anyway. Um, I can't put up 98% of this collection um, because of copyright restriction without getting some kind of a permission and permissions for distributing on the internet are difficult. Streaming is um, starting to, the streaming technology and the more secure it is, it's being more of a breakthrough. Otherwise, it's a trip to our reading room and um, th these days that's very difficult to do and so it's a real barrier to have to come to Washington, make an appointment, um, and li to listen to sound or look at video. So they developed the National Recording Preservation Plan. 
It was issued in December of 2012 and outlines some of the ways that the Library of Congress can better serve the public. They address copyright as one of the major impediments to preservation and access to audiovisual materials. Um, we can't invest resources in the preservation of material that we can't provide access to. Um, you know, we're taxpayer-driven. We should be supporting um, what the public needs here, and the public needs access to this collection. They don't need a dark archive digitizing things until um, the industry decides they want to publish them or not. That's no longer a model that we can sustain. I refuse to sustain, sustain it. So um, we're absolutely fervently pushing for change in the copyright law uh, to get greater access and wider access to the content. After all, the important thing about the work being done and the items being preserved at the Packard campus is that they're a representation of who we are as a nation. We can learn more about where we're at now by watching and hearing pieces of our shared cultural history. Um, you know, when you hear Franklin Roosevelt talk on a sound recording, you, you, you feel where he came from, you get a sense of where he came from, you get a sense of his strength, uh, you get a sense of his um, patrician bearing and his nobility, and reading the, reading the language, you might not get that. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It is your problem, my friend, your problem no less than it is mine. Together, we cannot fail. And think back to your heroes, the people that inspired you. What could you learn about their experience and humanity if you had a chance to listen? Well, Gene was able to hear a recording like that from one of his childhood heroes, the legendary baseball player Mickey Mantle. But you really, I mean, when he speaks in that, that Oklahoma twang of his, and uh, you get this sense of where the game came from, the place of the game. And these were you know, country guys. They were not college kids. These were, you know, working class guys that, that were playing the game then. And you really get a sense of that, hearing his voice and hearing him talk about the game. Vicky, what about next year in the American League? The Yanks walked off of the honors this year and then took the World Series. You think they'll do it again next season? Well, I think that we should. Uh, you can't ever tell how things will turn out, but the way it looks right now, I think that the Yankees are going to have the best team next year that we've ever had because our young pitchers, as you could see in the last part of the World Series last year, has really started coming around. And so and that you capture three, people uh, in their time and them. being able to, to, to journey back and hear it, hear it, it's almost like looking through a keyhole or putting your ear up to a keyhole and, and hearing the past. We have more on the National Audiovisual Conservation Center on our website, everythingsounds.org. We'll also have links to the National Recording Preservation Plan, the National Jukebox, and a lot of other things that we touched on in this episode. We've traveled to Virginia, California, New York, London, and many other places to bring these stories to you. If Craig and I have anything to say about it, Everything Sounds will always be free for you to listen to as long as we make the show. But it does cost money to produce. Craig and I have started and sustained the show with our own money, and if you like what we've done so far or you'd like to help us out in the future, think about becoming an Everything Sounds audiophile. We'll send you bonus episodes as they become available, 
and you can think about how you helped make the show happen each time you listen. Help us out by clicking the support button at everythingsounds.org to learn more. Everything Sounds is a part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. You can hear Everything Sounds along with shows like The Talk Show, SDMR, and The Mixtape at muleradio.net. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm Craig Shank. This is Everything Sounds. <laughs>